The Life of Moses Maimonides by Michael Friedlander in his 1904 translation of The Guide for the Perplexed by Moses Maimonides. Read by Daniel Davison. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Before the sun of Eli had set, the sun of Samuel had risen. Before the voice of the prophets had ceased to guide the people, the interpreters of the law, the doctors of the Talmud, had commenced their labors, and before the academies of Sura and of Pumbadita were closed, centers of Jewish thought and learning were already flourishing in the far west. The circumstances which led to the transference of the headquarters of Jewish learning from the east to the west in the 10th century are thus narrated in the Sefer HaKabalah of Rabbi Abraham ben David. After the death of Hezekiah, the head of the academy and prince of the exile, the academies were closed, and no new geonim were appointed. But long before that time, heaven had willed that there should be a discontinuance of the pecuniary gifts which used to be sent from Palestine, North Africa, and Europe. Heaven had also decreed that a ship sailing from Bari should be captured by Ibn Rumahis, commander of the naval forces of Abdurrahman al Nasser. Four distinguished rabbis were thus made prisoners Rabbi Hoshael, father of Rabbi Hananiel, Rabbi Moses, father of Rabbi Hanok, Rabbi Shemariahu, son of Rabbi El Hanan, and a fourth whose name has not been recorded. They were engaged in a mission to collect subsidies in aid of the academy in Sura. The captor sold them as slaves. Rabbi Hoshiel was carried to Kerowan. Rabbi Shemariahu was left in Alexandria, and Rabbi Moses was brought to Cordova. These slaves were ransomed by their brethren and were soon placed in important positions. When Rabbi Moses was brought to Cordova, it was supposed that he was uneducated. In that city there was a synagogue known at that time by the name of Knesset HaMidrash, and Rabbi Nathan, renowned for his great piety, was the head of the congregation. The members of the community used to hold meetings at which the Talmud was read and discussed. One day, when Rabbi Nathan was expounding the Talmud and was unable to give a satisfactory explanation of the passage under consideration, Rabbi Moses promptly removed the difficulty and at the same time answered several questions which were submitted to him. Thereupon Rabbi Nathan thus addressed the assembly, I am no longer your leader. That stranger in sackcloth shall henceforth be my teacher, and you shall appoint him to be your chief. The admiral, on hearing of the high attainments of his prisoner, desired to revoke the sale, but the king would not permit this retraction, being pleased to learn that his Jewish subjects were no longer dependent for their religious instruction on the schools in the east. Henceforth, the schools in the West asserted their independence and even surpassed the parent institutions. The caliphs, mostly opulent, gave every encouragement to philosophy and poetry, and being generally liberal in sentiment, they entertained kindly feelings towards their Jewish subjects. 
These were allowed to compete for the acquisition of wealth and honor on equal terms with their Mohammedan fellow citizens. Philosophy and poetry were consequently cultivated by the Jews with the same zest as by the Arabs. Ibn Gabrol, Ibn Chassadai, Yudah Halevi, Hananael, Elfazi, the Ibn Ezras, and others who flourished in that period were the ornament of their age and the pride of the Jews at all times. The same favorable condition was maintained during the reign of the Umayyads. But when the Moravids and the Al-Muwahids came to power, the horizon darkened once more, and misfortunes threatened to destroy the fruit of several centuries. Amidst this gloom there appeared a brilliant luminary, which sent forth rays of light and comfort. This was Moses Maimonides. Moses, the son of Maimon, was born at Cordova on the 14th of Nisan, 4895, March 30, 1135. Although the date of his birth has been recorded with the utmost accuracy, no trustworthy notice has been preserved concerning the early period of his life. But this entire career is a proof that he did not pass his youth in idleness. His education must have been in harmony with the hope of his parents that one day he would, like his father and forefathers, hold the honorable office of Dayan or Rabbi and distinguish himself in theological learning. It is probable that the Bible and the Talmud form the chief subjects of his study, but he unquestionably made the best use of the opportunities which Mohammedan Spain and especially Cordova afforded him for the acquisition of general knowledge. It is not mentioned in any of his writings who were his teachers. His father, as it seems, was his principal guide and instructor in many branches of knowledge. David Conforte, in his historical work, Corre Ha Dorot, states that Maimonides was the pupil of two eminent men, namely Rabbi Yusuf ibn Megash and ibn Rushd of Erois, that by the former he was instructed in the Talmud and by the latter in philosophy. This statement seems to be erroneous, as Maimonides was only a child at the time when Rabbi Yusuf died, and already far advanced in years when he became acquainted with the writings of ibn Rushd. The origin of this mistake, as regards Rabbi Yosef, can easily be traced. Maimonides, in his Mishnah Torah, employs in reference to Rabbi Isaac Alfasi and Rabbi Yosef the expression, My teachers, Rabotai, and this expression, by which he merely describes his indebtedness to their writings, has been taken in its literal meaning. Whoever his teachers may have been, it is evident that he was well prepared by them for his future mission. At the age of 23, he entered upon his literary career with a treatise on the Jewish calendar. It is unknown where this work was composed, whether in Spain or in Africa. The author merely states that he wrote it at the request of a friend, whom he, however, leaves unnamed. The subject was generally considered to be very abstruse and to involve a thorough knowledge of mathematics. Maimonides must, therefore, even at this early period, have been regarded as a profound scholar by those who knew him. The treatise is of an elementary character. It was probably about the same time that he wrote in Arabic an explanation of logical terms, Milot Higayon, which Moses ibn Tebon translated into Hebrew. The earlier period of his life does not seem to have been marked by any incident worth noticing. It may, however, be easily conceived that the later period in his life, which was replete with interesting incidents, engaged the exclusive attention of his biographers. 
So much is certain that his youth was beset with trouble and anxiety. The peaceful development of science and philosophy was disturbed by wars raging between Mohammedans and Christians, and also between the several Mohammedan sects. The Moravids, who had succeeded the Umayyads, were opposed to liberality and toleration, but they were surpassed in cruelty and fanaticism by their successors. Cordova was taken by the Al-Muwahids in the year 1148 when Maimonides was about 13 years old. The victories of the Al-Muwahids, first under the leadership of the Mahdi ibn Tamurt, and then under Abd al-Mu'min, were, according to all testimonies, attended by acts of excessive intolerance. Abd al-Mu'min would not suffer in his dominions any other faith but the one which he himself confessed. Jews and Christians had the choice between Islam and emigration or martyr's death. The Safar Ha'Kabalah contains the following description of one of the persecutions which then occurred. After the death of Rabbi Yosef Halevi, the study of the Torah was interrupted, although he left a son and a nephew, both of whom had under his tuition become profound scholars. The righteous man, Rabbi Yosef, was taken away on account of the approaching evils. After the death of Rabbi Yosef, there came for the Jews a time of oppression and distress. They quitted their homes, such as were for death to death, and such as were for the sword to the sword, and such as were for the famine to the famine, and such as were for the captivity to the captivity. And it might be added the words of Jeremiah 15.2, such as were for apostasy to apostasy. All this happened through the sword of Ibn Tamurt, who, in 4902-1142, determined to blot out the name of Israel and actually left no trace of the Jews in any part of his empire. Ibn Verga, in his work on Jewish martyrdom in Shebet Yehuda, gives the following account of events then happening. In the year 4902, the armies of Ibn Tamurt made their appearance. A proclamation was issued that anyone who refused to adopt Islam would be put to death and his property would be confiscated. Thereupon the Jews assembled at the gate of the royal palace and implored the king for mercy. He answered, It is because I have compassion on you that I command you to become Muslimim, for I desire to save you from eternal punishment. The Jews replied, Our salvation depends on our observance of the divine law. You are the master of our bodies and of our property, but our souls will be judged by the king who gave them to us, and to whom they will return. Whatever be our future fate, you, O king, will not be held responsible for it. I do not desire to argue with you, said the king, for I know you will argue according to your own religion. It is my absolute will that you either adopt my religion or be put to death. The Jews then proposed to emigrate, but the king would not allow his subjects to serve another king. In vain did the Jews implore the nobles to intercede in their behalf. The king remained inexorable. Thus many congregations forsook their religion, but within a month the king came to a sudden death. The son, believing that his father had met with an untimely end as a punishment for his cruelty to the Jews, assured the involuntary converts that it would be indifferent to him what religion they professed. 
Hence many Jews returned at once to the religion of their fathers, while others hesitated for some time, from fear that the king meant to entrap the apparent converts. From such records it appears that during these calamities some of the Jews fled to foreign countries, some died as martyrs, and many others submitted for a time to outward conversion. Which course was followed by the family of Maimon? Did they sacrifice personal comfort and safety to their religious conviction, or did they, on the contrary, for the sake of mere worldly considerations, dissemble their faith and pretend that they completely submitted to the dictates of the tyrant? An answer to this question presents itself in the following note which Maimonides has appended to his commentary on the Mishnah. I have now finished this work in accordance with my promise, and I fervently beseech the Almighty to save us from error. If there be one who shall discover an inaccuracy in this commentary, or shall have a better explanation to offer, let my attention be directed unto it, and let me be exonerated by the fact that I have worked with far greater application than any one who writes for the sake of pay and profit, and that I have worked under the most trying circumstances, for heaven had ordained that we be exiled, and we were therefore driven about from place to place. I was thus compelled to work at the commentary while travelling by land or crossing the sea. It might have sufficed to mention that during that time I, in addition, was engaged in other studies, but I preferred to give the above explanation in order to encourage those who wish to criticize or annotate the commentary, and at the same time to account for the slow progress of the work. I, Moses, the son of Maimon, commenced it when I was twenty-three years old, and finished it in Egypt, at the age of thirty-three years, in the year 1479, cell 1168. The Sefer Charedim of Rabbi Eliezer Askari of Safed contains the following statement of Maimonides. On Sabbath evening, the 4th of Eyar, 4925, 1165, I went on board. On the following Sabbath, the waves threatened to destroy our lives. On the 3rd of Shivan, I arrived safely at Akko and was thus rescued from apostasy. On Tuesday, the 4th of Marcheshvan, 49.26, I left Akko, arrived at Jerusalem after a journey beset with difficulties and with dangers, and prayed on the spot of the great and holy house on the 4th, 5th, and 6th of Marcheshvan. On Sunday, the 9th of that month, I left Jerusalem and visited the cave of Mechpelah in Hebron. From these two statements, it may be inferred that in times of persecution, Maimonides and his family did not seek to protect their lives and property by dissimulation. They submitted to the troubles of exile in order that they might remain faithful to their religion. Carmeli, Geiger, Munch, and others are of opinion that the treatise of Maimonides on involuntary apostasy, as well as the accounts of some Mohammedan authors, contain strong evidence to show that there was a time when the family of Maimon publicly professed their belief in Mohammed. A critical examination of these documents compels us to reject their evidence as inadmissible. After a long period of trouble and anxiety, the family of Maimon arrived at Fustat in Egypt and settled there. David, the brother of Moses Maimonides, carried on a trade in precious stones, while Moses occupied himself with his studies and interested himself in the communal affairs of the Jews. It appears that for some time Moses was supported by his brother, and when his brother died, he earned a living by practicing as a physician. 
but he never sought or derived any benefit from his service to his community or from his correspondence or from the works he wrote for the instruction of his brethren. The satisfaction of being of service to his fellow creatures was for him a sufficient reward. The first public act in which Maimonides appears to have taken the leading part was a decree promulgated by the rabbinical authorities in Cairo in the year 1167. The decree begins as follows. In times gone by, when storms and tempests threatened us, we used to wander about from place to place, but by the mercy of the Almighty we have now been enabled to find here a resting place. On our arrival we noticed to our great dismay that the learned were disunited, that none of them turned his attention to the needs of the congregation. We therefore felt it our duty to undertake the task of guiding the holy flock, of inquiring into the condition of the community, of reconciling the hearts of the fathers to their children, and of correcting the corrupt ways. The injuries are great, but we may succeed in effecting a cure, and in accordance with the words of the prophet, I will seek the lost one, and that which has been cast out I will bring back, and the broken one I will cure. Micah 4, six. When we therefore resolved to take the management of the communal affairs into our hands, we discovered the existence of a serious evil in the midst of the community, etc., it was probably about that time that Maimon died. Letters of condolence were sent to his son Moses from all sides, both from Mohammedan and from Christian countries. In some instances, the letters were several months on their way before they reached their destination. The interest which Maimonides now took in communal affairs did not prevent him from completing the great and arduous work, the commentary on the Mishnah, which he had begun in Spain and continued during his wanderings in Africa. In his commentary he proposed to give the quintessence of the Gemara, to expound the meaning of each dictum in the Mishnah, and to state which of the several opinions had received the sanction of the Talmudic authorities. His object in writing this work was to enable those who are not disposed to study the Gemara to understand the Mishnah and to facilitate the study of the Gemara for those who are willing to engage in it. The commentator generally adheres to the explanations given in the Gemara, and it is only in cases where the halakha, or practical law, is not affected that he ventures to dissent. He acknowledges the benefit he derived from such works of his predecessors as the halakot of Al-Fasi and the writings of the Geonim. But afterwards he asserted that errors which were discovered in his works arose from his implicit reliance on those authorities. His originality is conspicuous in the introduction and in the treatment of the general principles which in some instances precedes the exposition of an entire section or chapter, in others that of a single rule. The commentator is generally concise, except when occasion is afforded to treat of ethical and theological principles, or of a scientific subject such as weights and measures, or mathematical and astronomical problems. Although exhortations to virtue and warnings against vice are found in all parts of his work, they are especially abundant in the commentary on Abot, which is prefaced by a separate psychological treatise called The Eight Chapters. The dictum, He who speaketh much commits a sin, elicited a lesson on the economy of speech. The explanation of the Olam Haba in the treatise Senhedrin 11.1 led him to discuss the principles of faith and to lay down the thirteen articles of the Jewish creed. 
The commentary was written in Arabic and was subsequently translated into Hebrew and into other languages. The estimation in which the commentary was held may be inferred from the following fact. When the Jews in Italy became acquainted with its method and spirit through a Hebrew translation of one of its parts, they sent to Spain in search of a complete Hebrew version of the commentary. Rabbi Shimcha, who had been entrusted with the mission, found no copy extant, but he succeeded through the influence of Rabbi Shelomo ben Adaret in causing a Hebrew translation of this important work to be prepared. In the introduction, the author states that he has written a commentary on the Babylonian Talmud treatise Chulin and on the nearly three entire sections, Videlichet, Moed, Neshim, and Nezikin. Of all these commentaries, only the one on Rosh Hashanah is known. In the year 1172, Maimonides wrote the Egaret Taman, or the Patach Tikva, Letters to the Jews in Yemen, or Opening of Hope, in response to a letter addressed to him by Rabbi Yaakov Al-Fayoumi on the critical condition of the Jews in Yemen. Some of these Jews had been forced into apostasy. Others were made to believe that certain passages in the Bible alluded to the mission of Muhammad. Others again had been misled by an impostor who pretended to be the Messiah. The character and style of Maimonides' reply appear to have been adapted to the intellectual condition of the Jews in Yemen for whom it was written. These probably read the Bible with Midrashic commentaries and preferred the easy and attractive Agada to the more earnest study of the Halakha. It is therefore not surprising that the letter contains remarks and interpretations which cannot be reconciled with the philosophical and logical method by which all the other works of Maimonides are distinguished. After a few complimentary words in which the author modestly disputes the justice of the praises lavished upon him, he attempts to prove that the present sufferings of the Jews, together with the numerous instances of apostasy, were foretold by the prophets, especially by Daniel, and must not perplex the faithful. It must be borne in mind, he continues, that the attempts made in past times to do away with the Jewish religion had invariably failed. The same would be the fate of the present attempts, for religious persecutions are of but short duration. The arguments which profess to demonstrate that in certain biblical passages allusion is made to Muhammad are based on interpretations which are totally opposed to common sense. He urges that the Jews, faithfully adhering to their religion, should impress their children with the greatness of the revelation on Mount Sinai and of the miracles wrought through Moses. They also should remain firm in the belief that God will send the Messiah to deliver their nation, but they must abandon futile calculations of the Messianic period and beware of impostors. Although there be signs which indicate the approach of the promised deliverance, and the times seem to be the period of the last and most cruel persecution mentioned in the visions of Daniel 11 and 12, the person in Yemen who pretends to be the Messiah is an impostor, and if care be not taken, he is sure to do mischief. Similar impostors in Cordova, France, and Africa have deceived the multitude and brought great troubles upon the Jews. Yet inconsistently with this sound advice, the author gives a positive date of the Mashanic time on the basis of an old tradition. The inconsistency is so obvious that it is impossible to attribute this passage to Maimonides himself. It is probably spurious and has perhaps been added by the translator.
With the exception of the rhymed introduction, the letter was written in Arabic, in order that all should be able to read and understand it. For that purpose, the author desires that copies should be made of it and circulated among the Jews. Rabbi Nahum of the Maghreb translated the letter into Hebrew. The success in the first great undertaking of explaining the Mishnah encouraged Maimonides to propose to himself another task of a still more ambitious character. In the commentary on the Mishnah, it was his object that those who were unable to read the Gemara should be made acquainted with the results obtained by the Amoraim in the course of their discussions on the Mishnah. But the Mishnah, with the commentary, was not such a code of laws as might easily be consulted in cases of emergency. Only the initiated would be able to find the section, the chapter, and the paragraph in which the desired information could be found. The halakha had besides been further developed since the time when the Talmud was compiled. The changed state of things had suggested new questions. These were discussed and settled by the Geonim, whose decisions, being contained in special letters or treatises, were not generally accessible. Maimonides, therefore, undertook to compile a complete code, which would contain, in the language and style of the Mishnah, and without discussion, the whole of the written and the oral law, all the precepts recorded in the Talmud, Sifra, Sifre, and the Tosefta, and the decisions of the Geonim. According to the plan of the author, this work was to present a solution of every question touching the religious, moral, or social duties of the Jews. It was not in any way his object to discourage the study of the Talmud and the Midrash. He only sought to diffuse a knowledge of the law amongst those who, through incapacity or other circumstances, were precluded from that study. In order to ensure the completeness of the code, the author drew up a list of the 613 precepts of the Pentateuch, divided them into 14 groups, these again he subdivided, and thus showed how many positive and negative precepts were contained in each section of the Mishneh Torah. The principles by which he was guided in this arrangement were laid down in a separate treatise called Safar HaMitzvot, Works of a similar kind written by his predecessors as the Halakot Gedolot of Rabbi Shimon Kahira and the several Azharot were, according to Maimonides, full of errors because their authors had not adopted any proper method. But an examination of the rules laid down by Maimonides and of their application leads to the conclusion that his results were not less arbitrary as has been shown by the criticisms of Nachmanides. The Sefer HaMitzvot was written in Arabic and thrice translated into Hebrew, namely by Rabbi Abraham ben Chisdai, Rabbi Shilomo ben Yosef ben Yob, and Rabbi Moses ibn Tabon. Maimonides himself desired to translate the book into Hebrew, but to his disappointment he found no time. This Sefer HaMitzvot was executed as a preparation for his principal work, the Mishneh Torah, or Yed HaChazaka, which consists of an introduction and fourteen books. In the introduction, the author first describes the chain of tradition from Moses to the close of the Talmud, and then he explains his method in compiling the work. He distinguishes between the dicta found in the Talmud, Sifre, Sifra, or Tosefta on the one hand, and the dicta of the Geonim on the other. The former were binding on all Jews. 
the latter only as far as their necessity and their utility or the authority of their propounders was recognized. Having once for all stated the sources from which he compiled his work, he did not deem it necessary to name in each case the authority for his opinion or the particular passage from which he derived his dictum. Any addition of references to each paragraph he probably considered useless to the uninformed and superfluous to the learned. At a later time he discovered his error, he being himself unable to find again the sources of some of his decisions. Rabbi Yusuf Karo, in his commentary on the Mishnah Torah termed Keshef Mishneh, remedied this deficiency. The introduction is followed by the enumeration of the 613 precepts and a description of the plan of the work, its division into 14 books, and the division of the latter into sections, chapters, and paragraphs. According to the author, the Mishnah Torah is a mere compendium of the Talmud, but he found sufficient opportunities to display his real genius, his philosophical mind, and his ethical doctrines. For in stating what the traditional law enjoined, he had to exercise his own judgment, and to decide whether a certain dictum was meant to be taken literally or figuratively, whether it was the final decision of a majority or the rejected opinion of a minority, whether it was part of the oral law or precept founded on the scientific views of a particular author, and whether it was of universal application or was only intended for a special period or a special locality. The first book, Safar Ha Madda, is the embodiment of his own ethical and theological theories, although he frequently refers to the sayings of our sages and employs the phraseology of the Talmud. Similarly, the section on the Jewish calendar, Hilkot Ha-Ibur, may be considered as his original work. In each group of the Halakot, its source, a certain passage of the Pentateuch, is first quoted, with its traditional interpretation, and then the detailed rules follow in systematic order. The Mishneh Torah was written by the author in pure Hebrew. When subsequently a friend asked him to translate it into Arabic, he said he would prefer to have his Arabic writings translated into Hebrew instead of the reverse. The style is an imitation of the Mishnah. He did not choose, the author says, the philosophical style, because that would be unintelligible to the common reader, nor did he select the prophetic style, because that would not harmonize with the subject. Ten years of hard work by day and by night were spent in the compilation of this code, which had originally been undertaken for his own benefit to save him in his advanced age the trouble and the necessity of consulting the Talmud on every occasion. Maimonides knew very well that his work would meet with the opposition of those whose ignorance it would expose, also of those who were incapable of comprehending it, and of those who were inclined to condemn every deviation from their own preconceived notions. But he had the satisfaction to learn that it was well received in most of the congregations of Israel, and that there was a general desire to possess and study it. This success confirmed him in his hope that at a later time, when all cause for jealousy would have disappeared, the Mishneh Torah would be received by all Jews as an authoritative code.
This hope has not been realized. The genius, earnestness, and zeal of Maimonides are generally recognized, but there is no absolute acceptance of his dicta. The more he insisted on his infallibility, the more did the rabbinical authorities examine his words and point out errors wherever they believed that they could discover any. It was not always from base motives, as contended by Maimonides and his followers, that his opinions were criticized and rejected. The language used by Rabbi Abraham ben David in his notes Hasagot on the Mishnah Torah appears harsh and disrespectful if read together with the text of the critical passage, but it seems tame and mild if compared with expressions used now and then by Maimonides about men who happened to hold opinions differing from his own. Maimonides received many complimentary letters congratulating him upon his success, but likewise letters with criticisms and questions respecting individual halakot. In most cases, he had no difficulty in defending his position. From the replies, it must, however, be inferred that Maimonides made some corrections and additions which were subsequently embodied in his work. The letters addressed to him on the Mishneh Torah and on other subjects were so numerous that he frequently complained of the time he had to spend in their perusal and of the annoyance they caused him. But he bore all this patiently, as he had learned in his youth to bear the yoke. He was not surprised that many misunderstood his words, for even the simple words of the Pentateuch, the Lord is one, had met with the same fate. Some inferred from the fact that he treated fully the olam haba, the future state of the soul, and neglected to expatiate on the resurrection of the dead, that he altogether rejected that principle of faith. They therefore asked Rabbi Samuel Halevi of Baghdad to state his opinion. The rabbi accordingly discussed the subject, but, according to Maimonides, he attempted to solve the problem in a very unsatisfactory manner. The latter thereupon likewise wrote a treatise on the resurrection of the dead, in which he protested his adherence to this article of faith. He repeated the opinion he had stated in the commentary on the Mishnah and in the Mishneh Torah, but in more words, the same idea being reiterated in various forms, as the treatise was only intended for women and for the common multitude. These theological studies engrossed his attention to a great extent, but it did not occupy him exclusively. In a letter addressed to Rabbi Jonathan of Lunel, he says, Although from my birth the Torah was betrothed to me, and continues to be loved by me as the wife of my youth, in whose love I find a constant delight, strange women, whom I at first took into my house as her handmaids, have become her rivals, and absorb a portion of my time. He devoted himself especially to the study of medicine, in which he distinguished himself to such a degree, according to Al-Kifdi, that the king of the Franks in Ascalon wanted to appoint him as his physician. Maimonides declined the honor. Al-Fadhil, the vizier of Saladin, king of Egypt, admired the genius of Maimonides and bestowed upon him many distinctions. The name of Maimonides was entered on the roll of physicians. He received a pension and was introduced to the court of Saladin. The method adopted in his professional practice he describes in a letter to his pupil, Ibn Aknin, as follows. 
You know how difficult this profession is for a conscientious and exact person who only states what he can support by argument or authority. This method is more fully described in a treatise on hygiene composed for Alfadl, the son of Saladin, who was suffering from a severe illness and had applied to Maimonides for advice. In a letter to Rabbi Samuel Ibn Tabon, he alludes to the amount of time spent in his medical practice and says, I reside in Egypt, or Fustat. The king resides in Cairo, which lies about two Sabbath-day journeys from the first-named place. My duties to the king are very heavy. I am obliged to visit him every day early in the morning, and when he or any of his children or the inmates of his harem are indisposed, I dare not quit Cairo, but must stay during the greater part of the day in the palace. It also frequently happens that one or two of the royal officers fall sick, and then I have to attend them. As a rule, I go to Cairo very early in the day, and even if nothing unusual happens, I do not return before the afternoon, when I am almost dying with hunger. But I find the antechambers filled with Jews and Gentiles, with nobles and common people awaiting my return, etc. Notwithstanding these heavy professional duties of court physician, Maimonides continued his theological studies. After having compiled a religious guide, Mishneh Torah, based on revelation and tradition, he found it necessary to prove that the principles there set forth were confirmed by philosophy. This task he accomplished in his Dalalat al-Hayyarin, the guide for the perplexed, of which an analysis will be given below. It was composed in Arabic and written in Hebrew characters. Subsequently, it was translated into Hebrew by Rabbi Samuel ibn Tabon in the lifetime of Maimonides, who was consulted by the translator on all difficult passages. The congregation in Lunel, ignorant of Ibn Tabon's undertaking, or desirous to possess the most correct translation of the guide, addressed a very flattering letter to Maimonides, requesting him to translate the work into Hebrew. Maimonides replied that he could not do so, as he had not sufficient leisure for even more pressing work, and that a translation was being prepared by the ablest and fittest man, Rabbi Samuel Ibn Tabon. A second translation was made later on by Yehuda al-Kharizi. The guide delighted many, but it also met with much adverse criticism on account of the peculiar views held by Maimonides concerning angels, prophecy, and miracles, especially on account of his assertion that if the Aristotelian proof for the eternity of the universe had satisfied him, he would have found no difficulty in reconciling the biblical account of the creation with that doctrine. The controversy on the guide continued long after the death of Maimonides to divide the community, and it is difficult to say how far the authors hope to effect a reconciliation between reason and revelation was realized. His disciple, Yosef ibn Aknin, to whom the work was dedicated and who was expected to derive from it the greatest benefit, appears to have been disappointed. His inability to reconcile the two antagonistic elements of faith and science he describes allegorically in the form of a letter addressed to Maimonides in which the following passage occurs. Speak, for I desire that you be justified, if you can answer me. 
Some time ago your beloved daughter, the beautiful and charming Kimma, obtained grace and favor in my sight, and I betrothed her unto me in faithfulness, and married her in accordance with the law, in the presence of two trustworthy witnesses, Videlichet our master, Abdallah and Ibn Rushd. But she soon became faithless to me, she could not have found fault with me, yet she left me and departed from my tent. She does no longer let me behold her pleasant countenance or hear her melodious voice. You have not rebuked or punished her, and perhaps you are the cause of this misconduct. Now send the wife back to the man, for he is or might become a prophet. He will pray for you that you may live, and also for her that she may be firm and steadfast. If, however, you do not send her back, the Lord will punish you. Therefore seek peace and pursue it. Listen to what our sages said. Blessed be he who restores to the owner his lost property. For this blessing applies in a higher degree to him who restores to a man his virtuous wife, the crown of her husband. Maimonides replied in the same strain, and reproached his son-in-law that he falsely accused his wife of faithlessness after he had neglected her, but he restored him his wife with the advice to be more cautious in the future. In another letter, Maimonides exhorts Ibn Aqdin to study his works, adding, Apply yourself to the study of the law of Moses. Do not neglect it, but on the contrary, devote to it the best and the most of your time. And if you tell me that you do so, I am satisfied that you are on the right way to eternal bliss. Of the letters written after the completion of the guide, the one addressed to the wise men of Marseille, 1194, is especially noteworthy. Maimonides was asked to give his opinion on astrology. He regretted in his reply that they were not yet in the possession of his Mishneh Torah. They would have found in it the answer to their question. According to his opinion, man should only believe what he can grasp with his intellectual faculties, or perceive by his senses, or what he can accept on trustworthy authority. Beyond this nothing should be believed, astrological statements not being founded on any of these three sources of knowledge must be rejected. He had himself studied astrology and was convinced that it was no science at all. If some dicta be found in the Talmud which appear to represent astrology as a true source of knowledge, these may either be referred to the rejected opinion of a small minority or may have an allegorical meaning, but they are by no means forcible enough to set aside principles based on logical proof. The debility of which Maimonides so frequently complained in his correspondence gradually increased, and he died in his seventieth year on the twentieth of Tebeth, 4965-1204. His death was the cause of great mourning to all Jews. In Fostat, a mourning of three days was kept. In Jerusalem, a fast was appointed. A portion of the Tochacha, Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 29, was read, and also the history of the capture of the Ark by the Philistines, 1 Samuel 4. His remains were brought to Tiberias. The general regard in which Maimonides was held both by his contemporaries and by succeeding generations has been expressed in the popular saying, From Moses to Moses, there was none like Moses. End of the Life of Moses Maimonides by Michael Friedlander Read by Daniel Davison This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain.